I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. just went to a comedy show this week oh my goodness <laughs> and it was so deeply embarrassing it was so many levels yeah for me personally yeah um we went and saw curtis connor yeah so we saw curtis on the opening night of his tour which was a monday night so we drove down from dc to north carolina raleigh to raleigh and then back that same night so we wouldn't have to pay for a hotel. Yes. It was a lot of driving. It was like five hours there and five hours back. Yeah. It was um, super surreal. We ate at the Chili's. Yes. Yeah, it was us and... A sea of like 18-year-olds. Yeah. Um, that was embarrassing. It was. It was a little weird, like getting there and getting to like the bar and having no one else sitting at the bar mm -hmm. everybody else was sitting at like mm -hmm. tables clearly like people looking like super wide-eyed at like sex yeah. jokes yeah, yeah that was very disturbing yeah and it seemed like all of the women our age were with like significant others yes they were there like with their boyfriends <laughs> like like very much alone yeah um so that was fun. Yeah. The show was good. The show was great. There yeah. were a lot of hecklers. There were a lot, like an embarrassing amount of hecklers. Yeah, I don't think 18-year-olds know that trying to participate in the show, even if you're having fun, yeah. is still heckling. Yeah, it's still heckling. Heckling, it does not have to be like, you know, you saying a negative thing. Um, it's not, comedy is not participatory unless <laughs> they ask you to. Yeah. Unless they like point at you in the crowd and is like, you tell me something. You're not supposed to talk. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't understand that. Like, stop, stop participating. <laughs> Super embarrassing. Super embarrassing. But, um, anyway, so that's why there was no armchair bimbos again. Right. Yeah. And we just probably are going to take a break until after Thanksgiving. Yeah, they'll come out when we, when they come out. I, I think it's really unfair to ourselves to hold <laughs> so, such rigid schedules. <laughs> like, we know ourselves at this point. Come on now. We're doing the best that we can, guys. Yeah. Um... I mean, I always get my shit written. It just takes a little bit to record and do things. But yeah. Nevertheless, welcome to the show. Yeah, here we are. This is the Podcast Rejects. I'm Spencer, of course, sitting with Alaska. Hey. And we're doing uh, part two of our Spelunking series. Finally. I feel like it's been forever since we did the last one, even though it's been exactly a week. Yeah, I don't know why it feels like we're late on this one, because we're absolutely on time. I think it's the time change and the fact that it's so dark outside. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been pitch black for almost you know an hour and a half at this point right so um, anyways there's a bunch of uh, not interesting stuff about our lives let's get back into it yes um i think all of the stories today involve death um Ooh. i actually don't think we have any more stories that um somebody leaves alive Dang. like at least one person dies yeah um so if that's not your thing hearing people like getting stuck in caves drowning in caves this is not the series for you. No, definitely not. Uh, last time I went really hard on spelunkers and cavers. I'm going to continue with that probably. Yeah. And it is probably just going to get worse because mm -hmm. every time I have to read a statement from an experienced caver saying, well, they wouldn't have died if they just didn't do X, um, I lose my mind a little bit more. Yeah, just like the utter disrespect to dead people that like spelunkers have yeah is insane so anyways again if you're a caver <laughs> this might not be the series for you no Listen. and we've gotten some uh attention from uh cavers on our instagram they've like liked our posts and stuff and i just i really want to be clear if you guys even listen to the series that maybe it's not for you. This is not pro spelunking. This is not pro spelunking at all. I I want to be clear that almost everything we talk about is not going to be pro that thing. Yeah, that's the reason we talk about <laughs> because it. Because what a boring podcast to be like. I love being in caves, <laughs> or just like you just talk about things that you're like you like them. Just like hey guys, today was a great day, <laughs> and nothing interesting happened because it was all perfect. We went into a cave, and then everything was fine, and then we came back out. <laughs> what a boring podcast. Um, 
<laughs> Nevertheless, let's get into it. Okay. So our first story um, happens in Utah. This is Accident on Y Mountain, which oh, okay. is how a lot of things were titled, which I thought was a great um, <laughs> title for this. It sounds like a Nancy Drew book. It like does. Nancy Drew explores the accident on Y Mountain. Mm-hmm. I would read that. Yeah. So the story takes place in 2005 in Utah County, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, which we are going to circle back to later in this series. Oh. <laughs> we have another Utah County, Utah story later on. Two um, for two. Yeah. Okay. So this area, there are like a ton of caves in this area. They have a specific Utah County search and rescue team specifically for all these caves. Um, the people in the area know about many of the caves, like the ones who do search and rescue and are part of these groups. But um, they said the sheer number of caves makes it impossible for anyone to know about all of them, which is disturbing to me. Yikes. (laughs) Um, This specific cave where this accident happened was unknown to a lot of people. The members who were part of the rescue team who were like 30 year veteran cavers had no idea that this cave existed. Holy shit. Um, and I would also say, uh, quick side note, in the article, or one of the articles I read about this caving accident, they actually talk about uh, the Nutty Putty Cave. Okay. And yeah. um, the president of the local speleology group said that the Nutty Putty Cave should be kept open despite worries that it was mismanaged because it was the perfect cave for beginners. Um, so that's some foreshadowing for later. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Feel my foreshadowing. So 2005. All right. So this cave, known as Dead Man's Cave, it's located near 1420 East Summit Drive. So if you're looking at a map, that's where it is. Um, It is an almost fully submerged cave. um, And the opening was a water hole that was about four feet deep. So it goes four feet deep and then it's just a cave, you know, horizontal from there. Okay. Um, There was a 15 foot underwater cave that led to a chamber uh, with about two or three feet of breathing water, so horizontally. Okay. Um, and the entire cave was about two and a half feet in diameter, so not super tight. Yeah. Um, and not a spectacularly big or deep cave, right. but this, you know, just speaks to the dangers of caving. Um, it thought to have possibly been part of an abandoned mine originally and maybe part of it like caved in and created just this small area. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Honestly, we should not allow them to abandon mines. <laughs> no. The amount of times that I hear something that's like abandoned mine, which there it's always in horror games as well. Always. <laughs> You're always in a fucking mine. But I'm like, I feel like if you were a company that was mining, it yeah. should be your responsibility to fill in the mine. Fill it in. If you're like, nothing's going, you know, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Like, it's done, then fill it in. Yeah. That should be, like, a responsibility. And then if they abandoned it, it should be the responsibility of, like, the county or something. Yeah. Because it seems like a huge danger, and I can't even imagine how many bodies are hidden in abandoned mines all over the country. Yeah. Because it just sounds horrifying. Yeah, horrible. On August 25th, 2005, Mm -hmm. a group of five explorers entered the cave at 3 a.m., which I was like... Why? 3 3 a.m. Couldn't wait till daylight? A a water hole, and you're like, I just gotta get in there. I gotta see what's in there. I gotta know. It's it's just water. (laughs) Let me in, please. (laughs) Um, So the five who went under were Scott McDonald, who was 28, Blake Donner, who was 24, Jennifer Lynn Galbraith, Galbraith, uh, who was 21, Joseph Ferguson, and Ariel Singer, um, who was 18. I don't know Joseph's age. Um, <laughs> Joseph's not allowed to <laughs> say his age. They were all wearing shorts and sandals and were equipped only with a flashlight to go swimming underwater. Um, Jesus. So all of them entered the actual cave except Joseph Ferguson, which I guess explains why we don't know his age, because he stayed out of the cave. Oh. Um, so he's continued to age. Got it. That makes sense. <laughs> so Joseph Ferguson did enter the cave with them and attempted to swim the tunnel, but um, said he couldn't. So he decided to swim back and then wait at the waterhole entrance with a flashlight. After about an hour of waiting for his friends, he became concerned and they called the police um, later that morning at 6.25 a.m. Um, wow. So a couple hours have passed. I'm, I'm just, your friends have gone underwater mm-hmm. and it takes an hour before you're like, 
maybe they're not coming back up. Yeah. I feel like five minutes and I'd be like, guys, there's no way you're holding your breath that long. Right. And I'm like, I don't know how much he knew about this cave. I don't know if he knew about the, like, breathing space. I don't know. Yeah. I can't even fathom that. Yeah. After he called for search and rescue, um, one specific rescuer arrived and entered the cave and he said that the water didn't seem that cold but he was wearing a wetsuit so um hypothermia could have been a factor for the people who went in there it's really hard to tell especially because by the time they were entering the water to search for them it had been several hours and the sun had risen right um so originally they pumped out six inches of water uh before they found the first body in the tunnel um, they then continued to pump the rest of the water out as the rest of the bodies were retrieved. Um, the Utah County Sheriff said he believed the explorers made it to the second chamber and were on their way back out of the cave when they died. Okay. Um, he said that if one of the victims had drowned, that could have prevented the others from getting through, which mm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, apparently there was a rope tied from the entrance of the waterhole through the tunnel to the cavern on the other side to help spelunkers. So even though no officials knew about this cave, a lot of locals must have, because somebody must have tied the rope down there. Right. Um, According to one man who actually had explored the cave before, it was very easy to get disoriented inside because the dirt starts to swarm up whenever you're swimming inside of it because it is kind of a small area. Uh And once that happens, even with the flashlight, you are virtually blind. Right. Uh, So you wouldn't be able to see where you were going, which is why they have the rope there. But if you were just like a kid in sandals and shorts... You might not know about that. So if one of them got disoriented, the rest of them could have drowned behind them. Right. They did confirm that all of them died by drowning and uh, ultimately closed the cave after this happened, which seems like a no brainer to me. Yep. But apparently there was a lot of pushback from other cavers, which is like another common theme is like people will die in caves and then other cavers are like, but I won't do that. They're like, I won't do that though. So just let me in there. I was like, it's 15 feet of water. Like it's not even, it's not even cool. Like yeah. you're not even like going to see something cool. At least in the f- fucking iceberg story, there were some cool pictures. But I was like, it's literally just dirt. Yeah. For 15 feet. Yeah. There's no reason for you to be down there. It doesn't make any sense. Um, pretty disturbing stuff. So this happened in 2005, and it resulted in a lot of changes with like the speleology community and the mm. way that they acted around caving in this specific area Hmm. um which i just want everyone to keep in mind because i am going to elaborate that later on in our series in episode three gotcha (laughs) uh so that was a shorter story yeah but you know still very tragic five people died yeah super interesting that not a lot of people knew about it yeah yeah um i just found it really disturbing that there were so many caves that like even the speleology community like didn't know at them like the officials and stuff yeah it's also wild that just because it's a small cave does like it's not necessarily easy or anything right like you described it's easy to get like disoriented and they literally put a rope in there so that people would like know where they are and all that for someone to be like well it's could be for beginners because it's tiny and it's like just because it's small doesn't mean it's easy right good well, this one wasn't for beginners. Oh, that wasn't the one? Okay. Nutty Putty was the one that was for beginners. Sorry, Which my is not mistake. an underwater cave. Okay. Yes. So gotcha. underwater caving, like cave diving, is a whole different ballpark because a lot of the dangers that you face um, underwater is something you would never face in a normal cave. Like a lot of people die from breathing too quickly or uh, working too hard at certain depths because you're going to have a lot more pressure on you than if you were just under the ground right so definitely not a good idea to go in at all but especially without any equipment anything um because even if it's a small cave if you're going underwater you need some sort of like breathing apparatus absolutely so this next case um is actually kind of an old one it takes place in 1965 oh this takes place in schroeder's pants cave which pants pants oh okay um it's a cave located in goodell corners Um, in New York. So I think it's like upstate New York. Okay. So in 1965, James Mitchell and two friends, Heidi Miller and Charles Bennett, um, 
came to explore this cave. This was in February. Mm -hmm. Um, So apparently they arrived from New York City specifically to go caving, but were not aware that prior to their arrival, there had been like a large freeze in the area. So the cave and anything they came into contact with was exceptionally cold. Right. And because the temperatures were starting to rise, there was ice water pouring throughout this cave's passageways. Yikes. So the three of them worked through this cave, through a lot of different tight sections, until they reached an open area. Um, It was a vertical shaft that extended into the cavern about 80 feet below. Wow. So it was a vertical shaft, and then it opened up into, like, this huge cavern. Right. Um, So nowhere to, like, climb down. Like, you couldn't, like, rock climb down, and it is fully vertical. Right. So they attached hooks uh, with safety lines to the wall. And despite the fact that water was pouring down this vertical shaft down the cave, Mitchell started down um, before getting stuck. I couldn't really find what caused him to get stuck, but just something went wrong with the safety line that he was on. Um, He tried to climb back up, but because there was so much water pouring down directly onto him, he couldn't really use his fingers very easily. Right. Uh, So they were trying to pull him up, but um, there were gallons of frigid water pouring over his head every minute. Jesus. Um, So the other two spent 45 minutes trying to lift Mitchell to safety with, like, no movement at all. Yeah. And so Bennett left the cave to find help. Um, however, by the time rescue teams arrived and like reached Mitchell, cause obviously they're pretty deep in this cave. It takes a while to get in there. Yeah. Um, he had died from hypothermia just yeah. hanging under this like freezing cold water. Makes sense. Which I'm pretty sure happens to somebody in one of the Saw movies. Interesting. They get like frozen to death by like cold water. Oh, I've never seen a single Saw movie. They're not good. I don't recommend them. Okay, good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So they originally tried to recover his body, but failed when part of the cave collapsed after heavy drilling. Oh. Um, Which I also thought this was interesting. Uh, There was a team flown in from Washington, D.C. on Air Force Two for this rescue attempt. Interesting. Which I was like. What is Air Force Two? <laughs> is I'm um, just making a pretty shitty guess, but I guess the vice president's plane. <laughs> Since the president has Air Force One, yeah, I'm like who? Air Force not as good. Um, <laughs> but that's besides the point. So instead, they lowered the body into the bottom of the cavern, um, just you know, using the rest of this rope and basically just dropped him down there and then dynamited the cave and placed a memorial headstone above it. Okay. So it sat like this for a while, um, but different openings to the cave were discovered a couple years later, so still in the 60s. Wow. Um, But only about 20 people were ever thought to have made their way into these caves. Hmm. Um, I think it was still pretty difficult to access. Right. So 41 years after Mitchell died, obviously still in the cave, um, in 2006, a man named Christian Lyon, um, whose grandfather had actually discovered the cave in 1947. Holy shit. He received a blessing from Mitchell's family and local officials to try and recover the body. Oh. Um, And since his grandfather discovered it, I guess they were like... Sure, I guess. It's in your DNA. Um, I'm not sure that that means much. But nevertheless, they gave him his blessing to go and find his remains. Um, It took six rescuers about four hours to make their way into the cavern Mm. and um, recover Mitchell's bones, which... Uh, had been scattered at the bottom of the 75-foot drop-off in this cavern, which is crazy. (laughs) Insane. Um, They also recovered his helmet, Mitchell's helmet, which had 18 markings representing the number of caves he had explored. Oh. This is going to be his 19th. Wow. uh, Which is not a lot before dying. Not many. Um, There's another person that we're going to talk about who, after discovering that they loved caving, went into 300 caves in the span of about five years. Holy shit. Do these people have jobs? I don't know. (laughs) Like, do they get sponsors or something to, like, get them to, like, pay for their trips? I have no idea. I feel like these people are doing this so, like, constantly. I have a hard time leaving my house. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine leaving to do something where I have to bring this much equipment and there's this much prep involved. Yeah. And doing that, like, every weekend. 
Yeah, and it's like physically exhausting work. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like overwhelmed just like moving our tech stuff like a few inches around in mm-hmm. our apartment. I'm like, oh, that's a whole project. I have a hard time washing my hair. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> even putting on all of this stuff. I feel like I would, um, like, put the helmet on, like, once and, like, look in a mirror and think I look really ugly and be like, I'm Absolutely not doing this. Not. Actually, Absolutely not. Actually, it's over. It's over That's kind of how I feel about rock climbing. Yeah. Which I'm like, is fun, but I also yeah. I'm like, I look ugly. Yeah, especially, like, having to, like, wrap those, like, straps, like, around your thighs, like, basically under your butt. Um, I don't know. It's, like, they look fine on everybody else, but for some reason in my brain, I'm, like, ugly. I'm, like, wearing diapers. Yeah. <laughs> ugly big child. <laughs> uh. Sorry, weird tangent. A mess. Um, so anyways, he did recover his remains and obviously return it to his family, which I'm sure was nice. Yeah, that's And good. to my knowledge, the cave is still open. Why? So you can just meander on in there. I don't understand why they would leave a cave open when they already tried to, like, fill it. They yeah. were like, let's dynamite it, you know, make sure people can't go in. Yeah, exactly. So this one is actually kind of an oddball because um, it does involve caving, uh-huh. but it is technically considered a disappearance. Oh. So this is the story of Benjamin McDaniel. Okay. Ben McDaniel was a 30-year-old man from Tennessee who was, like, an avid diver. Okay. Um, He had been living at his parents' beach house in Florida during what he called a sabbatical after some unfortunate life events. I'm not really sure. Like, you know, divorce and a lot of debt. Oh, okay. Sad life events, as you do. Yeah. I just heard parents' beach house, and I was like, oh, (laughs) Oh, rich kid problems. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, but I don't know his life. Sorry about that. Anyways. that. So he started becoming a uh, more avid scuba diver while living in Florida and became a frequent visitor to Vortex Spring. Okay. Uh, so this is the largest diving facility in Florida, um, and it's fed by the um, Floridian Aquifer. Oh. So they have Wait, been- so facility, is it man-made then? Or is it natural? It's natural, but okay. it's also like it is... Um, run by like a company that does cave like they oh. teach diving and they like, do scuba lessons and there's like a hole like it's not just like a random hole in the ground Got it, it is like run by okay a group it's of like people. their land okay. yeah that makes um, sense which is really common especially with like aquifers like they try to have you know people want that water <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm trying to explain i get to try to explain what this cave looks like we are going to post a um general like drawn map of what it looks like yeah um but it's a huge thing of water you know it's like a lake basically yeah um and a cavern begins about 58 feet below the surface oh okay and then um a cave starts about 300 feet from the cavern it's 115 feet underwater okay so if you're looking at the map um which is obviously on our Instagram. You probably need to look at it to, like, understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, you can sort of see the cavern up top, and then there is cave parts, and then it says gate. So that is when the actual cave begins. Gotcha. That, okay. It's a gate that they put in. So divers who want to go in the water at all and down to the cavern, like, not even into the cave, have to present proof of open water certification. Mm-hmm. And sign a release of liability before they go in. Right. Um, And people come from all over the world to experience this cave, which is considered, like, the main attraction of Vortex Spring. Makes sense. Also, this is a tangent um, because this picture comes up a lot with connection to the story, but it's actually located in a different spring in Florida, so another caving system. Okay. um, Called Guinea, Florida. So this cave is... I feel like it's a really common cave. It comes up a lot when you're looking up, like, spelunking and stuff. Um, It depicts a grim reaper with a bunch of corpses below him. And it says, stop, prevent your death, go no further. And then it says, fact, with a bunch of different, like, factoids. It says, fact, more than 300 divers, including open water scuba instructors, have died in caves just like this one. Fact, you need training to dive. You need cave training and cave equipment to cave dive. Fact, without cave training and cave equipment, divers can die here. Fact, it can happen to you. 
And then in bold at the bottom, it says, there's nothing in this cave worth dying for. Do not go beyond this point. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's the general model, uh, like motto for spelunking. Yeah. Like, there's nothing in these caves that are worth dying for. Exactly. Uh, I'm just like, yes, this is exactly right. Yeah. Um, apparently in this particular spring, uh, the partic- this sign is like in what they call the light zone. Okay. Um, near like access to a really narrow crevice. Um, so before you get into like the real cave. Yeah. But I kind of wanted to talk about it just because it was like constantly coming up and I was doing the research for this one. Yeah. At Vortex Springs. Um, and I just feel like all cavers should read the sign. Yes. Especially cave diving. Should take it to heart. Don't, don't do it. Jesus. It's a bad choice. So inside the cave, as I mentioned before, there is a man-made gate, which is kind of similar to Jacob's Well, which we talked about last episode, although right. this one is still there, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in order to get past the lock gate, you actually have to get a key from the cave diving shop with your like certification which the certification requires 125 dives with an instructor or certified diving partner so it's pretty hard to get the certification nice um which i think it's good to have the cave you know the gate there yeah that should be restricted honestly um so starting from the gate there have been over 1600 feet of cave mapped um going to a depth of 310 feet deep which is like for context, when you were that deep underwater, it takes you about six hours to get back to the surface because otherwise you will die from decompression sickness. Right. So that is extremely deep. Um, however, that is not all of the cave. That is yeah. just what has been mapped out of the cave. Right. Um, it is an extremely big, like, caving system. Most aquaphors are. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it has been, you know, mapped out, but you know, we have no idea how deep it goes or how far it goes underground. Right. Um, also, inside the passages of it, the cave narrows to 10 inches in diameter. Holy shit. Which is incredibly small. So divers have to take off their tanks, push them forward through the passage, and then twist their bodies to follow into it. Which is crazy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is like a side note. Um, it's semi-relevant later, but not really. But the man who owned Vortex Springs at the time, uh, Lowell Ke- Kelly, mm-hmm. um, was actually facing criminal charges at the time that this disappearance happened. Oh. He had allegedly taken a temporary employee who owed him $1,000, who owed Lowell $1,000, yeah. out into an isolated wooded area and attempted to beat him with a baseball bat to make him pay up. Um, the man escaped, and prosecutors later charged Kelly with assault and kidnapping in the incident. Oh, my God. Um, so this was all sort of happening around when this story takes place. Jesus. Back to Ben. Yeah. Despite some personal setbacks, Ben was working on rebuilding his life and was looking to get his certificate as an instructor so that he could find a job. He wanted to start a diving-related business. Okay. Um, fine. Whatever. We have our opinions on that. We won't spend any more time. (laughs) So on August 14th or 15th, 2010, uh, Ben returned to Florida after staying with his parents in Tennessee for a while. Mm -hmm. He left behind a letter thanking his parents for the sabbatical and promised to look after them as they grew older. Like that's what he left for his parents at their house. Okay. Um, On Wednesday, August 18th, people saw Ben diving in Vortex Spring. And other divers noted him looking closely around the cave entrance, but not actually going in. He didn't have the key or did not retrieve the key. Right. Um, He spent the afternoon filling his tanks at the diving shop, um, testing equipment and making notes in his dive log. Shortly before 7.30 in the evening, he called his mother on his cell phone, um, hung up and then went into the vortex again. So on his way down, two employees on their way back from a dive saw Ben beginning to descend with his lights on while he was wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them had suspected for some time that Ben was forcing the gate open. So he went down and unlocked it and watched Ben go into the cave. Then the two employees surfaced and left. So they were just like, hey, he's trying to break into the cave. Mm -hmm. Let's just let him in. Yeah, that's what they've said. Why? Why? What? Uh, the next morning, Ben's truck was still in the parking lot, but the employees said that they were too busy that day to notice. Um, but on the second morning, 
which would have been Friday, uh, his truck was still there, and so they called the sheriff's office. So the deputies sealed off the spring with crime scene tape immediately. Uh, they found his wallet, some cash, his cell phone, dive logs, showing that he had, in fact, explored the cave, and a map he had made in his car um, of the area, of the cave area, but no tanks, wetsuits, or other diving equipment. Okay. So they're assuming he took it with him. Um, at his beach house, they found his dog, who was hungry from being um, having been unfed for two days. Right. Uh, luckily alive. So thank God. <laughs> so the police and dive shop employees believe that he had never resurfaced out of the cave. Yeah. They expected that a large number of divers, both amateur and expert, would volunteer for the search to recover McDaniel's body. Um, but soon realized that very few divers in the world possess the training and skill necessary to attempt this kind of cave diving recovery. Oh, wow. So we'll get sort of into the details of like cave dive recovery later in our next episode, but um, it is extremely difficult because you not only have to maneuver your way into wherever their body is, yeah. but you then have to remove all of the heavy elements from the body you know, tanks, helmet, whatever, a mm -hmm. lot of times even the wetsuit. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on how decomposed the body is, it can be very difficult to maneuver it back to the surface. So you need right. a lot of training to even attempt this kind of thing. So, right. um, and this is a very difficult cave to maneuver in to begin with. And they have no idea where his body could be. Right. So... They did have some experienced divers scour the cave. Uh, they were investigating small crevices and fissures inside that they thought Ben might have entered into in a panic attempt to exit the cave. So if he had gotten disoriented. Right. Um, and especially like as his tank started to run low, which is a pattern they found in other cave diving deaths. So your air starts to run low and you don't think as straight, you get disoriented. So even more so than just being in a dark cave. Right. Um, you know, you just, it's like being at a very high, like on a very high mountain. Right. The lack of oxygen can just like make you sick and you do things that don't make sense. Yeah. It was very risky for them to be down there. And one diver said that he nearly died during the search. Uh, multiple divers searched throughout the weekend, but did not find any sign of Ben. Hmm. Um, some tanks were recovered though. So there were two tanks were found at the entrance to the cave. Um, this is really common for cave divers to do. They'll place extra air tanks needed for decompression at points along their exit route. Because like I said, it takes hours to decompress from this kind of level. Right. So when they're running out of air, they can switch to a different tank. Makes sense. Um, however, these tanks uh, contained normal air and not specialized gas, which is like required for diving at this depth. Yeah. It's not just like your standard, you know, air that you would put in a tank. Right. Um, and Ben's parents claimed that he would have known this. He would have been aware of this requirement because he'd been diving for so long. Mm. So they didn't know why there would be regular air in this, these tanks at this level. Yeah. Um, so then the team that was trying to locate him, they called in Ed Sorensen, mm -hmm. um, who has like a crazy level of experience as a diver and a he is a recovery specialist. Yeah. Um, he went into the cave several times. I think it was three separate times looking for the remains. Mm -hmm. uh, he found no body or evidence of one, nor any evidence that Ben had gotten into these harder to reach sections that he was making it into, such as marks on the cave wall, which would probably happen as you were maneuvering your way in, especially with a tank. Right. Um, he explained that Ben was 6'1 and weighed 210 pounds, which was one inch taller and 20 pounds heavier than Ed was. Uh, he said without cave diving training, there would be no way for Ben to have gotten into some of these narrower passages. Um, called restrictions by divers um, okay. inside the cave. So there, he was like, there's no reason for us to search in there to begin with because he never could have gotten in there. Mm. Um, he said, I know what I'm doing and I barely made it through. The last place I searched was pristine without a mark that a diver had been there. It would be impossible to go through that restriction without making a mark on the floor or ceiling. He's mm. not in there. Um, so in total, 16 divers spent 36 straight days looking for Ben's body with no results. Right. Um, I would also like to say that this is not, does not mean that he is not in the cave. Right. Um, bodies do move around in these sort of cave systems unless for some reason they have been like 
they got trapped in like wiring or something or they got trapped in an actual like restriction right it's very common for bodies to move around especially as they decompose because oxygen is released your body becomes like twice or three times the size in water mm-hmm. um the body does a lot of weird things when it decomposes but especially in water and especially at depths of this level for sure um so that you know doesn't rule it out but a lot of people including experts did not find him or any sign of him and they didn't think that he was necessarily down there all they have is these two tanks right so after all of this a lot of cavers were convinced that he was never in the cave to begin with Mm. and he never went down there um because they searched the area obviously nothing was ever found uh so the mcdaniels hippin's parents released a reward for ten thousand dollars for anyone brave enough to go in and find Ben in areas that other divers could not get to. It's not about bravery. Yeah. Oh my god. You're <laughs> like, like want people to like risk their lives like weird some sort of weird ego thing. Right. Extremely Just for weird. your kid. Like yeah. oh my god. Um so obviously this was super insulting to all the other divers and also put people in danger because people who were not as experienced were going in to try and get this money. Eventually, they ended up raising the reward twice, um, but then finally rescinding the reward after nothing came of it and after so much criticism from the, you know, caving community. Of course. I mean, it's, like, so evil. I don't know. In, like, a really, like, inconsiderate way. To be like, well, they're just not brave enough. Like, when uh, they're telling you. Yeah, and it's just, like, putting other people in danger. It's so fucking disgusting. Yeah. So this, we're going to, you know, get away from the caving for a second and go off the rails. So in 2011, a year later, uh, Lowell Kelly, the guy who owns Vortex Springs, uh, died after falling down some stairs and hitting his head. So I I think this happened at a party and somebody found him. They took him home and then left him in his bathtub to like recover from a concussion. Um, And then someone else found him in a, like the next day in a very bad state so they called the police um i'm not sure how much how conscious he was for the remainder of his life but he died in hospice a month later so died as a result of this injury um the police said that they did not have the full story of what happened and also refused to release a full ops uh, autopsy of kelly because they claimed it would be it would compromise an ongoing investigation. Oh my god. So clearly the police think there's a possibility that this could have been purposeful. Yeah. Eventually the McDaniels began to believe that Ben had died of a result of foul play mm-hmm. um or that his diving disappearance was staged to cover up a crime. Um, they ended up hiring a private investigator who found that many of the people associated with Vortex Spring, not just Lowell Kelly, um, had a criminal record and should not have been working there. <laughs> Honestly, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like the people, I can't imagine anything more sketchy. Yeah, the people like working at a place like this, I don't know. That just makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> um, like many of these stories, there was a documentary made about this. Um, I haven't watched any of them, but... I do want to eventually. Some of them sound really interesting. Hmm. Um, And the person who was planning to make this um, documentary was Jill Heinerth. So she's back in the story. Jill's here. Uh, She planned to make a documentary about the spring. And she also says that she believes that Ben was not in the cave. Uh, okay. While she was making this. Okay. Um, but during the research process, she was able to read Ben's dive log. So she was given access to this through her, the police, and the map that he had made and realized that he had, in fact, gotten very far into the cave based on his drawings. Yeah. Um, and then clarified, she said that divers in trouble will often burrow deeper into narrow crevices, such as those within the cave, in a mistaken effort to get back to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, And then she revised her opinion saying, I simply see no reasonable evidence that he is not in the cave. Interesting. So she started the documentary being like, he's not in there. And then after finding all this evidence is like, there's no way he's not in there. Okay. That's crazy. Um, He is still, you know, considered missing. They have never found any remains to my knowledge. Um, And they have no idea what would have happened to him. Yeah. Um, but 
That is a crazy story. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, my girl Jill is insane. Yeah. She's like a crazy person, but I'm inclined to believe her. I do trust her. Yeah. I feel like she is stuff. an authority. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like she doesn't know what she's talking about. Right. So this next story, uh, our final story for today, mm-hmm. um, takes place in Norway. Yeah. Uh, so this is a trigger warning for anyone <laughs> that speaks Norwegian, Finnish, Icelandic, Swedish. Yeah. This is not... I would recommend you just don't listen. <laughs> yeah. Or if you do, please, please do not judge us for pronunciations. I don't even speak a second language other than English. I'm I spent, going to do my best. Like, I could, like, 20, 30 minutes just trying to, like, find any pronunciations mm-hmm. for most of these. Some of them I found, like, clearly, like, a Finnish person saying it. I would yeah. still might butcher it, but at least I was able to find one. Some of these I, you know, found basically just computer gener- you know, generated things, and that was the best I could find, and just, like, context clues from the other names of how certain things are pronounced, so it's, <laughs> sorry about that. The We're names are not going to be best. pronounced correctly, and those are hard languages. They are, and yeah. there's so many letters. There's so many letters. Um, but at least they're letters that I can read, at least not in, like, Russian or something. Right, <laughs> Like yeah. a different alphabet. Yeah. So... The cave we're talking about, it's at the end of the Plertalen Valley in central Norway. Okay. Uh, The cave opening is a pond on the surface known as Plura. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an underground section that is about, it says half a kilometer long. What does that mean? Whatever the metric system is. um, Which leads to a long, colorful cave underneath the surface. Okay. Um... I do have a picture of this on um, the in, our Instagram, which does label where these accidents took place, so you can kind of follow along as we go, and also see the name of this other cave that I have to say a lot, and I don't know how to say it. Um, <laughs> please forgive me. I'm doing my best. The long underwater cave, I think there is a section where you were able to climb out of the water to like admire the cave oh. before returning back to Plura, the... Um, pond on the surface Mm -hmm. um but the highly trained and experienced cavers who want to you know test themselves can continue on a course that quickly plunges much deeper and becomes narrow and difficult to navigate Mm -hmm. which you can kind of see in this picture it kind of just goes like straight to the side and then it starts going deep underwater um the water here is ice cold obviously we're in norway of course and it is pitch black down there you can see nothing of course after navigating this entire tunnel which goes down to 135 meters which is 450 feet about wow so keep in mind our last one only went down to like 300 right yeah so really fucking deep underground Um, so after you navigate this tunnel, it finally opens up to a cave named Stein Uglefleget. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's right. I, that is, I looked, I listened to a lot of like the Google Translate voice saying it in the Icelandic voice, the Finnish one and the Norwegian one. Mm-hmm. I found one like little video on YouTube of the, telling this story and yeah, that's, you know, the closest thing. <laughs> but I could find to a pronunciation of it. Yes. Stein Uglefliget. Yes. Maybe we should just call it the Stein Cave the while Stein we talk about cave. it. Um, so about 90 meters above the cave's vaulted ceiling is an exit, um, which is basically just a crack in the collapsed side of the hill. Um, it It is possible to climb out this way, though it is difficult, obviously, once you get to this side. Right. Um I've written a lot of this, by the way, in meters, so I'm going to do my best to, you know, change them to feet as we go, but obviously it's in Norway. They use a metric system. I mean, not that I could really conceptualize them in feet anyways. Yeah, I was like, like, how do I even measure, like, one foot? Yeah, and I'm like, caves are so different, too, because it's not the same thing as, like, moving above ground, like, mm -hmm, distance. mm -hmm. Like, yeah, so. So, um... The first dives that took place uh, took place on February 6th in 2014. So two divers cut a triangular hole in the ice at Plura, which is the pond that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. It was covered in ice and dove into the water. Um, They were encased in waterproof dry suits and had diving equipment, at least. Okay. Um, This this kind of diving is extremely dangerous. Getting to Steinuf. 
Uglifligate. <laughs> Stein Uglifligate yeah. is a five hour dive. Um, which obviously goes to depths of like 450 feet. Um, and at such depths and temperatures, a tear in a dry sh- in a dry suit on the sharp cave floor can result in your death pretty quickly. Um, there is also the possibility of equipment failure or hypercapnia, uh, which is basically carbon dioxide poisoning. Oh. So I'm just going to try and like read this paragraph that I saved. So, so uh, this is one of the divers. He said, mm. carbon dioxide absorbs into the bloodstream much faster and easier at this depth. Cave divers use rebreathers, which artificially absorb the carbon dioxide they exhale, but these can become overloaded if the divers start breathing quickly. Um, right. And at depths, it is that these kind of depths, it is more difficult for them to control their breathing. Right. Um, so if you have to do anything physical, like swim harder or faster, anything, it can be extremely dangerous. Right. And you can die very quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, hypercapnia uh, can be deadly and even in a mild case may cause confusion and disorientation, as I mentioned before, um, which in a deep cave like this is, you know pretty bad uh you do not want to get you know confused down here no after these two men uh left about two hours later once the sediment that was raised by the first diver so you know obviously you kick dirt up this can make it really difficult to dive after someone because you can't see shit right um the three remaining divers who were their friends they were there together followed behind so all five of these men were headed to steinoglifliget mm-hmm I have to say their names now. Good Lord. Um, Patrick Gronkvist mm-hmm. uh, was the first diver to set off. So he was in front. Uh, he had actually discovered the passage a year before. So he had been there before. Uh, behind him was Yari Portinen. Um, he was attempting to traverse this for the first time. Uh, but obviously all of them were pretty experienced. Not a right. whole lot of newbies here. Right. Um, so about an hour into the dive, as the men were moving up the cave, so past the lowest section that you see on the map that I've posted, mm-hmm. Patrick realized that Yari wasn't behind him. Uh, he went back and found that Yari was stuck in a narrow section of the cave, entangled in a cord connected to a piece of his equipment. Um, so he was panicking. Yari was panicking, mm-hmm. um, which meant that he was breathing way too fast for his rebreather. Right. So Patrick gave him a cylinder of gas to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in his system. Mm. But while he was trying to switch the mouthpieces, um, Yari started to helplessly swallow water because oh. he could not slow his breathing, which right. is, you know, very difficult to do at this depth. Right. So Patrick basically had to watch helpless as his friend drowned right in front of him. Jesus. And he could do nothing to help him. Um, he started to panic, but knowing that this could have killed him because of the fast breathing, he forced himself to calm down and try to untangle his Yari's body, mm-hmm. um, but was unable to do so. So he then started to move up to Steinugelfliget, mm-hmm. um, but he had to move slowly or be at risk of decompression sickness, right. uh, which is potentially fatal. Mm-hmm. Um so it obviously was going to take hours to get to the surface after he just witnessed his friend drowned in right. front of him. Right. Um, he also knew as he was traversing this that at some point the second group of divers was going to come across Yari's body right. blocking the way. So the first diver of the second team or, you know, the third diver in the whole line was Vesa Rontanen. He said, and this is a direct quote, I got to that narrow place where the first diver got stuck and I had to decide what to do. My options were to try and pass the dead diver or to turn around and try to do with a very long dive back, go back to the deepest section and try to survive to the surface. I decided to go forward and that was a very good decision for me, but it took at least 15 minutes to get past the dead diver. Um... I find it really weird that he didn't say his name. Yeah. Like, aren't um, they friends? Yeah. I, I That just, like, rubbed me the wrong way. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, um, he eventually caught up to Patrick, but with his struggle to pass Yari, which, again, was only 15 minutes, um, added three hours to his decompression time because he had to spend that extra 15 minutes at that depth. Right. That is, like, how intense the pressure is at these levels. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot 
emphasize that enough. It is insane how much pressure your body is under. Right. Although as he was like approaching the surface, he started to run low on gas because obviously they had not planned to be down there that long Mm -hmm. um, and was forced to surface 80 minutes earlier and started to suffer mild pains in his knees and elbows, which is a symptom of decompression sickness or as it's often referred to, the bends. Mm -hmm. Um, And this grew steadily more serious um, like over the following hours. Yeah. So the fourth and fifth person... um, you know, we're following behind. I think they were semi-close together. Okay. Uh, so the fourth person was another Yari, Yari Usamaki. Um, he arrived at the first Yari's body and panicked. Um, they, that's what they think happened, at least. Mm-hmm. Nobody was there to watch him drown, but he also perished. Mm. So the fifth diver behind him, Kai Konkinen, tried to um, come to... Usamaki's aid, mm-hmm. um, but obviously it's unclear what happened down there. Um, so Konkanen actually turned back and then swam the long way back to the starting point. Wow. Um, he finally emerged from the cave in the uh, early hours of the next day, more than 11 hours after setting off into the cave that was supposed to take five hours. Wow. Um, he had to break a thin layer of ice to climb back out of this pond. She's like so terrifying. Yeah. And you can see in the picture that I post on Instagram how close they were together. Um, not right next to each other, but it seems maybe like the second accident happened after he tried to like swim back, maybe. It's mm. un- it's unclear. Yeah. Um honestly it's amazing that any of them made it out. Yeah. So the three survivors were all hospitalized with decompression sickness, and the Plura Cave was closed um, yeah. to the public, which is good. Uh, they called in British cave diver Rick Stanton and two other divers, John Von Linden and Jason Mallison, mm-hmm. to retrieve the bodies. Um, they came in on the Stein Uglefleget side okay. um, and then dived down to survey the site of Horternan's accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first accident that occurred and realized that he could not be readily freed from uh, the side that they were on. And he also blocked access to the second victim. So they couldn't really get all the way through. Uh, So these men knew that it would take lots of dives to even try and retrieve the bodies. And obviously it's a very risky cave to begin with. There are all of the issues I just listed, plus you have to get two bodies out. Right. Um, So they decided as, you know, they agreed with the Norwegian police that it was too risky Mm -hmm. and the recovery was called off. Yeah. So, um... In the aftermath of this accident, Gronkvist, Patrick Gronkvist, um, talked to Horturin's wife mm-hmm. um, and actually made her a promise that he would go and get both of them back. He said that having the bodies would be helpful for the families to grieve um, and would also help with the lengthy insurance and inheritance settlements that they were trying to get, which I was like, interesting. Why would the bodies help? But okay. I guess it was like... Because there was no bodies, they couldn't actually confirm a cause of death. So, like, I Mm. guess there could be, you know, assumptions of murder. I mean, we're in another country, too, so I don't know what their laws are like. Right. I guess I could kind of understand. Yeah. Um, Because I think all those change if, like, for suicides, it's pretty common. Yes. Um, Yeah. So, I guess, yeah. So, he had, you know, promised this to do this himself, but uh, soon discovered that the rest of the team that was down there... Um, all had the same idea. So all three survivors and another man named Sammy Pakarnan um, were going to retrieve the bodies. So Sammy was a friend of the group and was actually there for the original discovery of the cave with oh. Patrick. Um, he also trained the two men who died um, and considered them his friends. Oh, wow. So they planned this in secret because they knew if they asked the Norwegian police for permission, it would be refused. Of course. Um, and they also felt like they had an advantage over the British divers that were down there um, because obviously they had done the dive before, which makes sense. Yeah. They were worried about their emotional reactions upon finding the bodies, uh, so they all tried their best to, like, process their emotions in the months leading up to the rescue hmm. so that they could basically work almost like robots once they were down there, which to me sounds really smart. Yeah, it is smart. So, in all, a team of 27 people worked together to execute this plan. Um, two teams supported the divers 
at shallower levels at both ends of the traverse. Uh, while Patrick, Sammy, and Kai went in to raise the bodies up. Okay. The other member of the team, Vesa, uh, was actually still recovering from a spinal injury that was caused by his decompression sickness. Oof. So um, he did not dive with the team, but he was there and worked as a surface manager. So, like, organizing the teams. Okay. Well, that's good that he was there for support. Yeah. It's like spinal injury. That's I mean, 80 whole minutes before he was supposed to. Like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's it's intense. Yeah. Um, so the plan was actually a five day plan. They spent the first day lugging a ton of gear like up into the caves. They mm. had to move it slowly up a cable to like the mountain that they were on to do get access to it. Right. They then spent a day setting up the equipment and leaving fifty cylinders of gas along the route and um an underwater habitat, which I didn't know what this was, but this was really interesting to me. It is basically a man-made pocket of air that divers can use during decompression stops to allow them to get out of the cold water, remove their masks, and even eat. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I was really, I didn't know that thing existed. But yeah. They crazy. brought that as well, which honestly, I'm like, if you're going to do underwater cave diving, you should have that from the get-go. Right. I'm like, why is that not standard? Personal opinion. <laughs> so on the third day, the divers began the recovery um, Kai returned not long after this, saying that he slept badly and was simply not in the right mind, like frame of mind for the operation. Yeah. Which again, good on him for recognizing that. Yeah. <laughs> like better to do that surface, you know, mm-hmm. at the surface, like than really have to do good that down there. Emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, and there is actually footage of this of them like doing this rest the recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can watch them in the cave. I believe you can see most of the footage in a documentary that was made about this team so oh, okay it's pretty cool um so they passed usamaki mm-hmm. um and then came upon horternan's body and patrick freed him and then sammy followed him to the surface to like help maneuver him you know the body up there right so then the following day the fourth day they returned to the cave to retrieve Usamaki's body. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a lot more difficult, though, because he was more buoyant. Like, the body uh, was more buoyant and mm-hmm. unyielding, unlike the first. And um, Sammy, who was helping with the rescue, obviously, the recovery, almost died when part of the cave collapsed on top of him. Oh, my God. Just like, oh, my God. Like, I panic just hearing about it. Yeah. It, like, stresses me the fuck out. Yeah. I don't know how you do this. Um, the and then to- keep a cool enough head that you don't accidentally kill yourself like by suffocate I, yeah so the total operation took 101 hours of diving time oh my god to recover these bodies um so the next day after they you know recovered the bodies and they got them down this mountain uh they went to the police police station to be like we we did, did this. that yeah <laughs> um the police were like they, you know, kind of pleased that they had recovered the body, but they also said that the team had broken some laws and they mm. had to investigate. Uh, six months later, however, the group was told that they would face no charges for the illegal dive, which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rick Stanton, who was the British diver who was part of the team who like called off the search, was not pleased that this had happened. And he said that though it was well planned and executed, if a little bit out there in terms of danger, that's a direct quote. <laughs> um, he said that uh, he was troubled because he said they came out as heroes and made a film about it, but two people should have never died in the first place. Which, first of all, I'm going to say the first thing sounds a little bit like sour grapes. Yeah, like, it does. You know, very weird. Mm-hmm. But this is like when I started writing this, I was sort of writing this backwards as far as these stories, and I came across this thing of him being like, the first two people should have never died in the first place. And I was like, this is my problem with like a lot of these experienced cavers mm-hmm. is that they say things that are just like wildly inappropriate. Yeah. Like if you knew someone who had like a friend had died tragically, mm-hmm. your reaction would never be they should have never died. Yeah. In a way that's sort of like, well, it should have just never happened to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um that is not an appropriate response it, to it, anything. It's completely, like, paradoxical, too, to, like, your role in this. You came in for a rescue and then determined that it was too risky to rescue these people. Recover. Like, go Or, sorry, recover. Um, these people, like, it was just too dangerous. 
But then you're going to turn around and say they shouldn't have died in the first place. Yeah. You just said it was so dangerous to right. be in here. So, yeah. Like, uh, that's so weird. Well, it's like, I, I like what they, it's like these were not amateurs. Yeah. They were pretty well trained. So mm-hmm. at least you're, unless you're saying that in like a, I'm also giving up caving and never cave diving again. Yeah. That is an extremely weird and inappropriate response. Super weird. Especially after these like men who had to watch their friends die risk their life to go back and recover these bodies mm-hmm. for like the family members. Yeah. And then succeeded miraculously. Yeah. Um, it is a not an appropriate thing to say. No. And I, there are so many stories like this where somebody dives while caving, you know, spelunking or cave diving mm-hmm. and some expert in quotes, because I'm like, how can you be an expert at being buried alive? Yeah. Um, comes out and says that they should not have died because they made all of these stupid decisions. Not appropriate. Like, you don't watch someone get in a car accident and say, well, if they weren't going five miles over the speed limit, that they wouldn't have died. If they, you know, didn't drive that day, they wouldn't have died. It's like, that's not an appropriate response. Yeah. It's not appropriate. It's not at all. And it doesn't matter that you are an expert at digging yourself into the ground like a worm. (laughs) You do not get to say that they didn't they shouldn't have died like that. Like, yeah. fuck off. Yeah. That's my beef. My main beef with, like, spelunkers and yeah. stuff is there are so many instances of this. It's just so, like, I'm like, you guys are so... It's very, like... And it's a, a clear form of, like, disassociation from that accident and the mindset of, like, it could never happen to me. Yeah. Which, like... Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Like, it happens to experts all the time. Like, this is an extremely dangerous and honestly very dumb thing to do. Yeah. And you are an expert in this. It could happen to you. Yeah. You were not better than the people who died because you haven't died yet. Yes, exactly. And I'm like... That is a very... It is so inappropriate. Yeah. And it's (laughs) so, like... I don't know. Have you not taken like basic statistics? I'm like, if you're the type of people to be diving more, there is a higher chance that you will die because you're doing it more often. Like who else is cave diving for hours and days and months on end other than the experts? Exactly. So of course you have a higher chance of dying. So just like completely disrespectful to be like, they shouldn't have died. It's like, and, like, a total disregard of, like, the dangers of what they're doing. Yeah. That's the other thing is they get mad at these stories of amateurs who just, like, randomly go in there and they're like, well, I'm so well prepared. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes, the reason you are well prepared is because the thing you are doing is extremely dangerous. And yeah. there is a high possibility that you could die. Yeah. That's why you're well prepared. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't make sense to me to be like, oh, well, these other experts that died, that would never happen to me because I would be prepared. It's and like, it's like, they, that's not the problem. It's not the problem. The preparedness is not the problem. No. The problem is that you were in a underwater cave. Yeah. And there are all of these, like, environmental dangers mm-hmm. that you are dealing with. Yeah. It is not your preparedness. No. Most of the time. Yeah. This recovery team was so well prepared, which you admitted yourself, like, you know, was a completely well executed and well, Mm -hmm. like, planned thing. And they still got out through a miracle. Yeah. How do you, like, prepare around part of the cave ceiling falling on you? Like, what happened to Sammy? That is not a matter of preparedness. Right. It's just whatever Mother Nature is doing at that time and whether or not she allows you to live. Yeah. And this is like a weird comparison, but it's just something I've encountered in my own life a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm something, I'm someone that is like very interested in cults and like learning about cults. I have like studied them for a long time, Mm -hmm. read a lot of books about them. Yeah. um, And I really enjoy talking about them. And the amount of times that I've had conversations with people, a lot of times men, but not exclusively, Mm -hmm. where they are like, well, I would never end up in a cult because I know what cults are Mm -hmm. and the signs of cults. And so I would just like not join one. And that's how this feels. Exactly. Where they're like, well, that would never happen to me because I could think my way out of it. I'm too smart, too experienced, too whatever for this to happen to me. And I feel like every single time I say, like talk to these people, I'm like, first of all, I guarantee that I know more about cults than you do. I guarantee it. Yeah. 
And I know for a fact that I would be susceptible to this kind of behavior. Absolutely. Because the truth is that anyone can fall victim to cults. Yeah. And it's like, that is the danger of caves. Yeah. Anyone can die in caves, no matter how experienced and well-prepared you are. Mm -hmm. It does not matter how, like, you know, how good you think you are at this thing. Yeah. You can die in there because the problem is the cave. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like. That's so insane. It's a very weird thing to do. And it's also wildly inappropriate to like try and basically without saying it, say you're better than the people who died. Yeah. Which is basically what you have said. Yeah. I'm like, what? That's basically your goal out of like this was just to prove that you're better than these people. And why are you doing that? I'm like, I don't. Why is that your instinct? You need to like reel it in. Yeah. Because it's like. It's very weird. And that's yeah. how I feel when people do that with the cults. Mm-hmm. Is they're very much being like, well, I'm better than those people who ended up in these cults. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You think Jim Jones was able to kill 900 people and you're better than all of them? Than all of them? Um, no. Especially, like, law students or lawyers who, like, make fun of people who are in Scientology. And I'm like, you have the same degree as the, a like, lot of those there people. There are a lot of lawyers in there. Yeah, lawyers and doctors. People who are considered very smart people. Like it doesn't have to do with your intelligence. Nothing to do with it. it. They, the nature of cults is danger. Yeah. It does not matter how good you are. No. At logicking your way out of it. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That was a tangent, but that I feel like really well sums up my like whole beef with like the community. Yeah. Because they all talk that way. <laughs> I'm like, why are you all speaking like this? Yeah. They drive me fucking insane. Yeah. This whole series is just like that TikTok sound, like to the spelunkers being like, okay, but don't fight me because I know how you girls <laughs> like, like to tussle. tussle. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's like, I have a question, but. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So anyways, um, that was the end of my rant, my yeah. soapbox. We do have one more episode for this, mm-hmm. um, which will be out next Friday where we will yeah. tell two more stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we have a special episode, yeah. um, which will come out the week of Thanksgiving. So you can expect an episode that day. Yeah. Um, you'll just have to see what it is and it comes out. Yes. And then we'll have some other series after that. Yes. We have a lot of, I spent many hours yesterday just writing ideas for series. Um, one of which I would love to do is uh, shipwrecks and Ooh. like people who scuba dive into shipwrecks because yeah. I found a lot of those when I was doing this research. Makes sense. And I ended up finding so many that I was like, this could be a whole series and it is extremely fascinating. So cool. we have a lot of good content. Yeah. At this point, we, even, we haven't even had our business meeting yet. So we haven't even talked about like, you know, yeah, what like we're doing. Coming up. Yeah. So. But- it's going to be good. It's going to be great. Um, if you want to vote on what we're going to cover, join our Patreon. Mm-hmm. For just a dollar a month, um, you get all the voting things. Mm-hmm. Um, super fun. And even at that tier, I think you can communicate with us through Patreon, too. Yeah. Um, about other stuff. Well, so lots that's of, fun. Lots of good stuff through that. So yeah. if you feel like we did a good job, give us a dollar, please. Thank you. Please. I need to pay for my meds. Yeah. <laughs> I was literally just talking about it in therapy today. She's like, so your goal is to like want to make money? And I was like, yeah. Is that dumb? <laughs> She's like, no. Like, I'm not going to tell you that's dumb. You're fucking therapist. And I'm like, okay, but maybe you're thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. The Podcast Rejects is a Gamer Frauds Network production. Find us on Instagram at The Podcast Rejects. For early access to all Gamer Frauds Network content and a ton of exclusive perks, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash gamerfrauds.